Welcome to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective Podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and in this podcast, we interview leaders and experts in critical care. And for today, we go to Houston, Texas to discuss points of care ultrasound in the intensive care unit. My name is uh, Jose Diaz Gomez. I am a proud brown Colombian immigrant and American citizen. I currently leading the cardiothoracic mechanical circulatory support and transplant critical care section with the, within the Texas Heart Institute at Baylor College of Medicine. I became passionate about PACU's adopter since 2009, and since then I have been committed to enhance the education, clinical research, and advocacy in PACU's. My background specialty is anesthesiology, and I pursue a fellowship in critical care medicine and further training in cardiac anesthesia as well. My leadership roles are within the Society of Critical Care Medicine. I am the anesthesia designated seat at SCCM Console, and I do represent the SCCM within the National Board of Echocardiography for the Critical Care Echocardiography um, exam. And lately, I have been involved with the special interest group within the society, American Society of Echocardiography. I do represent the CCM there as well. None of the content, none of my um, statements today will represent the society. It will be my own statements and it will be my own thoughts. Jose, an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast with us. Today we'll be discussing your article published in the NEJM in October 2021 entitled Points of Care Ultrasonography. Maybe you can kick us off by saying, you know, why do we need to use points of care ultrasound in the intensive care unit or with patients with critical illness? I think that we need point-of-care ultrasonography in the ICU because POCUS is a diagnostic tool with higher accuracy than our physical examination, including auscultation in critical ill patients who can present to us with clinical conditions that require timing evaluation and, more importantly, um, have a much better clinical decision-making. In addition to that, PACUS enhances the procedural guidance in common procedures such as thoracentesis, pericardiocentesis, paracentesis, arterial and central venous access, among other procedures. So once again, our diagnostic accuracy goes to the next level and our procedural guidance is more optimal. You utilize focus in critical patients. So it's great for managing patients with respiratory failure, patients with cardiogenic shock, CPR, and procedures. So maybe you can give us a background. How did point-of-care ultrasound start, and how has it evolved over the last decade or so to become such a useful tool in the ICU? I think the history of point-of-care ultrasonography in the ICU goes back to the 1980s. 
there is a public teaching hospital outside Paris. Its name is uh, Ambrose Perry Hospital. And there were a couple of individuals there that made significant advancements in the utilization of echocardiography in patients who were in the ICU. The authors uh, were mainly Dr. Uh, Francois Jordan. That was in 1981. He actually published um, the initial uh, concept um, of the application of echocardiography in patients that were under mechanical ventilation receiving high levels of fit and how that actually was affecting the heart function. That was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 1981. In the following decade, there was another colleague from the same institution, Dr. Daniel Lichtenstein, who actually was um, the first one who uh, put that term point of care ultrasound in a journal, and actually that was in, in 2007. So I'm not biased at all about saying that the French were the creators of PACUS, but definitely since the 80s to the 90s, there was this uh, application. Of course, there were other groups that were prominent um, in Italy, as well as in the United States. Um, and then, as you stated, in the last decade, um, there was a publication in 2011 with the same subject of point of care ultrasonography. That was Dr. Moore. He's an emergency medicine physician. And then I was privileged to do an update on the subject this past month. And then in the intensive care, which are the five most frequent uses that you employ uh, for point-of-care ultrasound, and what is the evidence supporting it? I think the five most frequent uses of point-of-care ultrasonography in the ICU will be, number one, undifferentiated arterial hypotension. So patients that are hypotensive and wouldn't have a reason or a specific etiology, obvious at least, uh, why the patient is hypotensive. That's probably the most frequent one, and that's the one I will advocate for. I will explain later why. But in general, I do apply critical care ultrasonography with an initial clinical presentation. I do, do not scan all the patients in front of me. It should be a trigger. So. Arterial hypotension is the most frequent one. As far as the um, evidence is concerned, I would say that most of the studies addressing arterial hypotension and the use of POCUS have not been able to demonstrate impact in mortality. However, there were at least two studies that were showing uh, lower trend in um, developing acute kidney failure. So perhaps, perhaps in the future, um, some author might, might be focusing, go after mortality, but I doubt that will be the case. The second uh, most common use is the presentation of acute dyspnea or respiratory distress. I have to say that in the last decade, there has been significant amount of work in, even uh, during the COVID pandemic, 
there were at least half a dozen studies, and definitely uh, POCUS has a role there, and I would say it probably will influence the clinical decision-making. Um, the third one will be the assessment of fluid responsiveness and volume assessment with all the limitations that it has in this specific setting. I will say that's probably one of the areas that has been more scrutinized, but it has helped us out to now even have phenotypes in patients with septic shock and recognize when enough is enough in terms of IV fluid resuscitation. The fourth area I will say is the utilization of focus in cardiac arrest, and there are a couple of studies uh, from the emergency medicine community, uh, and is is actually adding value to prognostication, for instance, uh, in addition to cognography and other new findings with POCUS. And lastly, I will need to mention still the other use will be the procedural guidance. I do not do any more any pericardiosynthesis without POCUS guidance. So definitely the safety that uh, POCUS provides in terms of uh, procedural guidance is undeniable. So, Jose, I'm glad that you've mentioned those five critical areas. So let's go through each one, and maybe you could give us your approach to each. So in undifferentiated hypotension, what do you do? So I have created in previous, uh, my previous practices a program where the patient is hypotensive, um, First of all, we are confirming that the monitor that is measuring that blood pressure is accurate, and it's confirmed that goes with an initial screening qualitative evaluation of arterial hypotension. As many of you are aware, there are many protocols, and I don't want to um, take on a specific one. I actually, I have my own one um, in even without mentioning the name, I just will um, share with you the order. So what I do first is to actually uh, procure a subcostal view because we have demonstrated that subcostal view, 80% of the time, the information that, that is in that view, it can be actually found having the three views. So we have defined recently an entry point for the novice to have the subcostal view and it's called the easy exam. And once again, I don't want to endorse any specific protocol, but I do a subcostal view. I try, number one, to see whether or not the patient has signs of chronic disease. If there are signs of chronic disease, I know I will have more limitations in the end. If there are no signs of chronic disease, I will uh, proceed with the evaluation of the right and left ventricular systolic function. Then after that, I will try to see whether I'm dealing with a situation where the patient is intravascularly depleted or vasodilated. And then from that, I basically will go to other um, causes such as the screening of tamponade because it's important. And then lastly, I complement those findings with um, ultrasonography. So. In the end, I made that integrative assessment between cardiac ultrasonography and lung ultrasonography. So the sequence of the view will be subcostal, and then I do apical, and then parasternal, and I have complement with the 
lone ultrasound views, and more specifically, um, trying to rule out uh, pneumothorax or large pleural effusions. How are you assessing a volume status in your patient with ultrasound? For volume status, um, I have to admit that it will be an initial screening step, and then a subsequent that will be most likely quantitative. So let's put an example. You arrive to the bedside, you are procuring the subcostal view. Now you have a patient that, because the clinical setting, you are suspicious that the patient has tamponade. And then you are seeing the IVC, and the IVC is absolutely collapsed. So two things. Is it not tamponade, or is it probably a regional tamponade? So I go with the streams. If I have a patient that is under mechanical ventilatory support, I'm expecting the IVC to be dilated, at least normal to dilate it. And again, if it's, if it's a stenotic, in my clinical context, most likely that patient will be hypovolemic. So my initial assessment go with the streams. When everything looks like normal, there is only one option, which is proceed with quantitative assessment, which will require utilization of Doppler and the Doppler, the spectral Doppler in the apical view, five chamber view, with estimation of the variability of the LVOT, VTI, measuring the peak velocity, that's the way to go. That was validated by the same French group I mentioned it at the beginning of the podcast has been the largest study, over 500 patients who were presenting hypotension. So once again, there is room for initial assessment, qualitative assessment, and when things are not that obvious, there is only one way to go, is doing quantification, and the provider has to acknowledge there are some limitations. For instance, if somebody's having just an early hemorrhage, you're not gonna be able to catch the problem. If somebody has atrial fibrillation, the variability of the LVOTVTI is not going to be good for that, so you cannot apply that. If the patient, for instance, has a very low tile volume or very high tile volume, will create problems in the measurement. So uh, that's the reason I said that it's probably one of the most controversial subjects in POCUS, but I have found tremendously helpful when I'm seeing the streams. When, it, when, when the finding doesn't make sense for what you have in your clinical context. Okay, so you'd recommend a qualitative assessment first, and when qualitative doesn't determine anything, go for quantitative. Okay, so that's a, your undifferentiated hypotension. Let's go on to patients who present with dyspnea. How are you using point-of-care ultrasound to distinguish the different causes of dyspnea? So very very good question and I have to I didn't disclose at the beginning of the podcast my my wife is a pulmonologist and I was inspired a while ago she said there are many patients that are referred to me because they have dyspnea and I have found the problem is not in the lung it's in the heart so the crucial concept here is that lung ultrasonography and cardiac ultrasonography they, they, you cannot separate both. So I believe in an integrative assessment in that regard. So in patients with dyspnea, I start 
with my cardiac ultrasonography, and I add as well lung ultrasonography. So I'm looking for right away, is there any problems that I'm seeing in the cardiac assessment regarding the left or the right heart, the right heart sided disease? As I mentioned before, looking for signs of chronic problems. Let's say I put the probe in the subcostal view and seeing the right ventricle is enlarged. There is hypertrophy in the right ventricle. Right away, the idea will be if you are able to even measure the PA pressure with POCUS quantitatively, and now I have a diagnosis of pulmonary hypertension without having left, left heart-sided disease, that's a tremendous information in the clinical context. Of course, I need to know all uh, the history of the patient. Then I will go and do my lung ultrasonography assessment, and I have to admit that, in, in my opinion, it's much easier, it's, my, it's more predictable to do a lung ultrasound assessment than a cardiac ultrasonography assessment. That's the reason I start with the, with the, with the heart assessment. Keeping in mind that the prevalence of left-sided heart disease is much higher than right-sided heart disease. And it's the most common reason why you have right ventricular dysfunction. So that's the reason I do start with cardiac ultrasonography and then complement with lung ultrasonography. The last thing, and I think there have been a couple of studies um, that have addressed this, is to supplement uh, the evaluation with vascular ultrasound and look for signs with the two point, the lower extremities, look for signs of uh, deep venous thrombosis. So but that way, um, as uh, this study has demonstrated in the past, um, you probably will have the opportunity to decrease the, you know, the final, um, you know, indication of having even a CT imaging of the chest in many instances. Um, of course, I'm not saying that that's the ultimate goal, but definitely from the quality improvement perspective, ensuring this protocol will expedite the clinical diagnosis and the management and better characterization of dyspnea in the acute setting, in the ED or in the ICU or on the floor. Great. And then in terms of cardiac arrest, uh, you gave a pretty good overview in your NEJM article on the utility of uh, point-of-care ultrasound in cardiac arrest. Maybe you could share that with our listeners. The utilization of focus in cardiac arrest has been and continues being extremely interesting because we are all committed to avoid any delays in um, proper ACLS maneuvers. We don't want to affect a proper high-quality ACLS. However, the study since um, Raoul Breckwitz in Germany a decade ago, he was able to demonstrate this condition that is named pseudo-PA arrest, which is basically you have uh, PA arrest, but there is cardiac motion in echocardiography. He was able to demonstrate that those patients with that echocardiography pattern 
actually have a higher chance to survive, and there were four distinct clinical conditions that were associated with that, which was hypovolemia and pulmonary embolism, ventricular dysfunction. And because of that, right now, it makes sense to incorporate focus on cardiac arrest and see whether you have proof of any of these conditions. I have been there many times where you are seeing right away the cardiac tamponade and you can treat it. Imagine if you are providing ACLS on a patient for 50 minutes, an hour. You try to bring this patient back, and you obtain ROSC, and then lose it again. Imagine that that patient has a cardiac tamponade that nobody has able to diagnose versus applying the tool within the first five, ten minutes. They, you provide the initial CPR cycles, and then in the pulse check period, you try to identify the potential treatable condition, and then you proceed accordingly. Of course, this will require team building, and this will require a lot of collaboration, and I have to share that it's not fun, it's not that easy when you're obtaining the images and you have a team asking you, what are you seeing, what are you seeing? And for that reason, I would say the utilization of focus in cardiac arrest is not for novice. The utilization of focus in cardiac arrest is probably for that individual that now feels comfortable utilizing, utilizing the tool. So it definitely requires someone who's an experienced ACLS provider who adds focus to the tools that he is using, he or she is using. And then in terms of fluid responsiveness, you know, a lot of folks uh, have learned that you know because you're fluid responsive doesn't mean that you should give someone fluid. So how are you using um, uh, point of care ultrasound to assess fluid responsiveness? And after you determine that someone is fluid responsive, how do you know whether or not you should give fluids versus not? This is perhaps the most um, insightful question I've been asked um, again and again, and I have some news. We went from talk about fluid responsiveness to talk about fluid responsiveness and balanced assessment, and then now we're talking actually about fluid tolerance. So you have the whole spectrum. What I'm trying to say is that that is correct because you are fluid responsive. You don't need necessarily to give fluids to the patient. And actually, you are um, obligated at times to see what will be the maximal tolerance you have for fluids. So but we, when we are adding that fluid tolerance, I'm pushing you to be in the advanced echocardiography training because you need to incorporate diastology on that, number one. Number two, you now need to discuss with your colleagues how you're going to assess fluid responsiveness on somebody who has right ventricular dysfunction. I have spent a good half an hour with the world leader in this subject, which is Antoine Barbaron from the same French hospital, and even he admits that it's tremendously challenging to do it. So the way I do it, and he was like, well, that's reasonable. 
the way I do it, for instance, if I have right ventricular dysfunction, because I deal with in my current practice, I take care of patients with LBATs, impellas, et cetera, heart transplant, lung transplants, the prevalence of right ventricular dysfunction in those patients is high. And by the way, most of the pulmonologists face the same situation because you have advanced lung disease, you will have right ventricular dysfunction. So how do you assess you know, fluid responsive in that patient population? Your LVOT variability is not reliable because RV dysfunction can cause that variability. So I'm looking to see how that interventricular septum moves after mini boluses, for instance, or I'm using now even uh, more advanced echocardiography with um, modified right ventricular uh, view and measuring the diameters of the right ventricle whenever I give these boluses. In addition to it, I correlate that with my hemodynamic monitoring that I have because in that specific setting, I'm a believer of having a swan gun in addition to the echo because it's so dynamic right ventricle. So see how we went from just generalizing the concept of fluid responsiveness to tailoring. Same thing happened with the septic shock patient population. Uh, Antoavila Baron again with his group uh, did a study with TEE and he was trying to identify phenotypes. And there were patients that were uh, fluid responsive and then not anymore, and those that continue being fluid responsive as well. So why he used, he used um, TEE? Because on TEE, he follows the SBC variability, which actually he demonstrated is the most sensitive um, surrogate for fluid responsiveness much better than the IVC. But guess what? In America, in general, we don't have TE probes in every ICU. And this is one of my, you know, I know that's one of the tasks. I need to help other colleagues in this country because I'm a cardiac anesthesiologist. I have the TE probe every day if I want. But we need to put that TE assessment there as an, in the armamentarium of the intensities in every single unit in America because it will be times where the transthoracic is not going to help you out. So I'm sorry I deviate a little bit from answering the question, but that with fluid responsiveness, having in mind the um, wide variety of patient population we have, we need, number one, do qualitative assessment, number two, quantitative assessment, and number three, Sometimes we'll need even transesophageal echocardiography, but it's not like one size fits all. This is probably the subject that will require um, the highest level of training and more uh, like uh, I would like to see a critical care practitioner that describes himself or herself as a proficient individual in pockets. Definitely, the context matters, and I think you've given us a good overview of that. Jose, um, point-of-care ultrasound uh, does have its limitations. Uh, in the ICU, what are the limitations uh, that you would want the listeners to be aware of? I think the limitations has to be learned even before you want to do this. Because you know your limitations, I can predict you can be more successful. So, as I said, my, my son has 12 years of age. That's, that was the year I was exposed to Parkus. So, I've been doing this for 12 years. So, let me try to put 
the, the, to answer the question with my own experience. The first limitation I had, and I knew because I was in a very prominent institution uh, with a world-class cardiology group, was the political atmosphere. I was the first intensivist using the tool in specific situations. So the, the, the first limitation is political atmosphere. You have to be aware of that. You need to have that emotional intelligence, how to approach the problem. And what helped me the most in that regard was to use a storytelling. I saved the life at 3 a.m. in the morning of a patient who have an esophagectomy, so you cannot do TE. I use TTE at 3 a.m. And that life that was saved, later on I received calls, we need to do more of this, but be aware of the political atmosphere. The second limitation is probably, is, is probably tied in the first place where the political atmosphere is time. You cannot become the person that just is an imaging specialist. No, you are, first of all, you are a physician, you are an intensivist, and you need to round, you need to take care of problems in the ICU. And I have seen cases where people are more interested in the imaging, but they're not putting the clinical context up front. And that's very important. So time will be a limitation. So that's the reason I was inspired to create a workflow where the, the tool is, is properly used. Not in every patient. I know that some people do that way. I say, what if I just implement that any patient who is hypotensive or hypoxemic or hypercarbic, I need, to, I need to do the assessment. That was a good starting point. But be mindful of the time. This takes time. And, and it's dangerous because if you rush in an evaluation, you might end up having a mixed diagnosis, and I will talk about that later. But political atmosphere, time. Number three, lack of proctored training. If you are on this, you better have a nice colleague that is willing to learn with you, or better, if you have somebody who is more experienced than you and has that psychological safety to make a call. I'm being called FaceTime. I'm being assessing videos 1 a.m. in the morning, being in another country because I was traveling with my family, but I have never abandoned my team. They know they count on me, and I don't want them to be then criticized for a bad decision-making. So the proctoring is absolutely critical. Number four, we lack of quality of assurance. People feel more comfortable having these hand, you know, handset um, systems, and they basically have in their pocket, they take a quick look, and they put it in the pocket again. More importantly, those individuals should be spending time trying to build collaboration with echocardiography labs, and that's what I have done. Currently, I work with the president of the American Society of Echo, and we catch up every month. I, I, I kind of even tell him, hey, look, at I did this, this study. I, I don't know what to do with it, or, you know. And it's something that the intensivists in the United States have to keep in mind. The cardiologists are in an echo lab. They're very experienced reading echoes, but they don't have the experience dealing with the clinical context. 
dealing with all the physiological variables that we have at certain at some point, at 2 a.m. in the morning, you know, it, uh, somebody was extubated and now is crashing, they're not going to know what the implications necessarily of an extubation or, or a new onset of sepsis. And that has been uh, very, very invigorating to me because that has been the way I've been able to um, continue paving a pathway to authentic collaboration between cardiology and critical care medicine. And I really want to send a strong message to others. The quality assurance is, is absolutely critical, and you're not going to be able to do it by yourself. You need those set of eyes telling you, hey, you can do this better. And the last limitation, and it's probably another field that now is, is getting my passion, and I'm just doing my baby steps in that regard, is, uh, as, as it was mentioned in the paper, there have been some concerns by um, national um, organizations regarding their, their lack of uh, safeguards in the utilization of FOCUS. Um, they have been talking about overutilization, uh, misuse. So I would say that when there is overuse and overconfidence without any of the other factors I have mentioned that you are set up for problems and that's a big limitation because you are overconfident and you are overutilizing the tool, you might end up, you know, having some mixed diagnosis and you do a mixed diagnosis and I just don't want to see any colleague that has been implicated in a bad outcome because a mixed diagnosis and a decision making doing a procedure that probably was not even indicated. So those are probably my top five limitations, and I want um, my colleagues to really think about it. So how would you get down to addressing those limitations? What studies do we need to address limitations with POCUS, and what studies do you think we need in the ICU uh, for folks uh, who want to learn POCUS? I think there are valid valid studies uh, to get done. And probably the most immediate one that we want to see is that um, we need to know what is the minimal training that will define a competent focus practitioner in critical care. That specific training has to be defined some people might feel it's a weekend. Some people might feel that it's not a weekend. There are such a variety. It would be nice to have multi-center collaboration, have an agreement, and go for it. And once we have that, we make that a national standard, and that we know that's the way to do it. That's number one. The other studies that I'm more interesting to see is actually um, having more impact over morbidity, functional status, workflow, cost effectiveness with the utilization of focus. And I will I will mention to you again a personal experience I have like six, seven years ago. I got called to the AD, patient was in respiratory distress. I got there and the patient has actually 
a Bercier. And I noted that patient probably has, this is malignant, um, large blood effusions. In less than one hour, I explained the family, I needed to put actually a pigtail catheter. I need to drain the pleural effusion to alleviate the dyspnea. So I did that, and then I spent another hour with the family telling them why I wouldn't even admit this patient to the ICU. patient went to the floor. Two days later, they decided that they were going to go. We actually come for measures. Imagine you replicate this same clinical picture in one year, and instead of doing that, the intensive is arriving to the ED because actually the X-ray looks good. That's what I was told. And basically, the patient gets worse. You do an emergent intubation, and the patient at least will be for a good three to five days in the ICU while the family is trying to understand what's going on and taking decisions. So when we're talking about studies, not necessarily is about Oh, yeah, definitely decrease the mortality because we are all aware that other tools have not been examined in that way. We shouldn't be um, examining the validity of utilizing POCUS just with a study that shows decreased mortality. And in the current era, there are other surrogates that are meaningful to our profession. And that's the reason I'm mentioning here, even providing good comfort, addressing symptoms on somebody with malignant disease, and allow them to be with less distress, cost-effectiveness, better utilization of our resources after this pandemic, no question, we'll be able to do better triage. So I will encourage my colleagues to really think broadly in does in terms of, of, you know, studies and with the limitations specifically. I'm really interested in and see I'm, I'm working in a framework to mitigate misdiagnosis with POCUS, and I will try to see whether I can put at least a collaborative uh, with other people who are interested in and, and see how we can have a, a quality improvement project in that regard that we can apply to any institution, community hospital or academic um, institution to mitigate those, those, those issues. And you need to understand even there might be a role here for um, artificial intelligence, you know, uh, because now with artificial intelligence, you will, be, you will have more um, better acquisition of the views. So probably your misdiagnosis can go down. So we need to come together and try to be uh, very innovative with the tool moving forward. But that will be my initial thought in terms of uh, which studies are needed in the ICU for POCUS. Yeah, point of care ultrasound is a powerful tool and we really appreciate you taking the time to um, discuss this with our listeners. Jose, you've been very generous at your time and I want to give you the opportunity to leave our audience with any concluding remarks about point of care ultrasound in the intensive care unit. Um, what are your final remarks? My final remarks, Dr. Pepper, is that I'm absolutely convinced that the future for POCUS is brighter than ever. 
because we have a, such a large group of enthusiastic individuals who are more savvy with technology. The technology is becoming more accessible to others. And keep something in mind. There is no any other tool right now for the intensities in this planet that bring us together more than pockets. Think about it. Think about it anytime you do a workshop. I did a workshop, let's say, in Mexico. And I had this person from a rural area. I want to learn this. And then five months later, sending me a study how he saved lives. This tool has been uniting the world. Now we have even studies in low-income countries and seeing the impact of having the tool there because they don't have a CT or a chest ray. Show me any other tool that brings physicians and healthcare providers in general. Right now, some of my nurses have with me sessions on how to acquire the abuse because they are going to the CRNA, CRNA school and they want to know actually how to see whether a patient is hypovolemic or not. So even it's even creating an even better interprofessional atmosphere. So intensivist has to keep in mind that the tool is just taking off. This is the infancy. I'm predicting that focus will be unstoppable. It will provide safer care to our patients, more cost-effective care to our patients, and it will be the tool that will allow us to celebrate that we are all together in this beautiful journey of medicine. Thank you. Uh, an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast, and we're looking forward to uh, your future work, and um, hopefully our audience uh, has learned a lot in terms of the benefits of using point-of-care ultrasound. Uh, for the audience, we discussed um, Dr. Jose Diaz-Gomez's uh, paper in the NEJM entitled Point-of-Care Ultrasonography. It was published in the October 2021 issue, and I definitely encourage you to go ahead and read it and uh, integrate it into your care. Thank you very much, Jose. An absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Dr. Pepper. I appreciate it. A big thank you to Dr. Jose Diaz-Gomez, and a big thank you to all of you for listening to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective Podcast. I'm Dominique Pepper for the American Thoracic Society.